How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In context. Bill Hendricks is president of the Giftedness Center, which grew out of a consulting practice he began in 1985. For the past 20 years, he has been helping people make critical life and career decisions based on their giftedness. Bill has degrees from Harvard. Do you remember the uh, Meliazzi brothers, Bill? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Our Fair City, Harvard uh, University, Boston University, and Dallas Theological Seminary. He is the author and or co-author of 22 books, including The Person Called You, all caps, Why You're Here, and Why You Matter, and What You Should Do With Your Life. And most recently, Men of Influence, The Transformational Impact of Godly Mentors. Alongside of his practice at the Giftedness Center, Bill serves as the Executive Director of the Center for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center at the Dallas Theological Seminary. Your alma mater. Your alma mater, my alma mater, your dad's uh, employment for 63 years. (laughs) Change, so 60 yeah. years yeah he was part of the uh, furniture here <laughs> i think he still i hope he still is <laughs> well his legacy definitely is and we continue to build on it by the day but you were and i think still are always one of his heroes he he adored you and he he loves your program loves what you're doing loves your church etc well it's Mutual. We have. Uh, I, I was so blessed to have him as not just a prof, but as a mentor and a, and a dear friend. Yeah. So I mean, you've seen this mentoring process played itself out personally, and you know the impact of mentoring personally. So just very recently, Cindy and I, uh, we have this two-year marriage mentoring program that we do, and we had a ten-year reunion for this group, mm. and uh, of the eight couples that were there. 26-some children, I think, have been born. Wow. But we had the sweetest time going around the room. They organized it, and uh, they asked me to come Saturday, and Cindy and I taught and reviewed and Q&A. And and then, unbeknownst to us, for dinner uh, night before last, they said, okay, we're going to turn the tables, and we're going to esteem you guys. Hmm. And, you know, you don't live long enough to have those experiences right yeah and these couples went around bill and and of course i quote you know your mom or dad or other folks all the time and uh they went around for almost two hours we're all in tears talking about you know witticisms and little terse statements i would say or when i quoted (laughs) a prophet and you know in god's kindness they're involved in church leadership uh, one woman is writing inductive Bible studies for her women's group. They're mm. doing great as moms and dads and parents and learning how to be generous uh, donors and givers. And, you know, you, you don't live long enough. And that goes back, you know, in no small part to your dad and other people that mentored me. So it is a legacy. Well, you know, what you see there, Michael, is that mentoring, I like to call it a continuum. In other words, when you're a teen, 
you know, growing up when you're maybe in your early 20s, you need a lot of mentors if you can find them by God's grace. Uh, he's kind of set it up for most people to kind of need mentors. The older you get, you start to get into your 30s, say, you start to realize, wait a minute, there's some teens and young adults behind me. I need to turn around and kind of help them figure some things out or at least walk with them along this journey while you still have your own mentors. And then you get up in your 50s and and certainly in your 60s, you've now got a lot of accumulated uh, experience, uh, hopefully some wisdom, some maturity. Yeah, a few regrets, some things you would have done differently, but you've got a lot to offer somebody else who's younger, and you definitely need to be looking backwards to mentor. Although, again, I believe all the way to one's uh, deathbed, you really need mentors. And so, yeah, when you're younger, you tend to kind of be looking for more mentors. The older you get, the more you need to serve as a mentor. And it's a it's a cycle. It's it's I liken it to a a relay race where, you know, you run your lap around the the track and then you got to hand off your baton to somebody else. And you've got a, I think in a Olympic relay, there's something like a a 20 yard overlap that as you're winding it down and coming in from your part of the race, somebody else is getting up to speed and they're part of the race. You hand off that baton. That's what needs to happen. Is it the uh, Montreal Canadiens inside their locker room? They have something you know, routed into the woodwork that says something like, from these failing hands, we pass the torch. May it be to you held high or something like that. You mm. know, and it, it really is yeah. a, a good illustration of this. And, and it simply, it's really discipleship. But when we talk That's about exactly mentoring, right. we're focusing it. And I love what you just said about more than one because uh, I, I don't know – you know, I, I often say I was a Dave Ramsey steward before I knew Dave Ramsey. I was a, a <laughs> learner disciple person before, uh, you know, Howard Hendricks. Mm-hmm. I always chased people that were older than smarter than me because I figured they could help me just, you know, from a yep. selfish perspective. I want to come back to that. But do you see in uh, your sphere down there younger men who are eager for this? Or is the next generation, the younger men and women in their 20s, are they a little bit reticent to talk to an older person? Oh my gosh. If I had an army of mentors, I could I could transform a generation. I have so many millennials that have voiced a desire, a, a really more like a yearning, a longing for mentors. And that's partly why I'm so insane almost uh, trying to to rally older people to get involved in mentoring because – the younger adults and teens and so forth absolutely need it. They know they need it. They want it. They remember many millennials. This is not a criticism of the generation. It's just a fact of their unfortunate lives. Many of them grew up in homes that were broken. You know, they, their parents were divorced. Some of them, their parents were in prison or had addictions and other dysfunctions. And so they don't really know how to be adults and they're kind of scared about it. You know, adulting is, is, is a difficult transition for them. What they most need is an older person to come and, in a sense, grab them by the hand and invite them into the adult world. And it, it's really, you know, we, we've made mentoring into this big, scary, you know, you got to be this wise sage. You got to have all the answers. And that's not, nothing could be further from the truth. 
it really is about as simple as kind of seeing somebody who's kind of struggling as you perceive it and just saying, hey, would you like to get together for a cup of coffee? And you sit down and and you say, tell me, where was growing up for you? You know, and just invite them to tell you their story. And and over time, you build a relationship like that and they trust you. You can start to make some real impact in their lives. Let's let's talk about the project uh, first, because um, your dad wrote a book on mentoring that I still have a cloth cover. Uh, I made him sign it. Uh, I put one of those uh, library acetates on. You remember those things you yes. put on the paper? <laughs> I've got about five yep. or six of his books like that that are just cherished uh, for me. So why why did you say, okay, now is the time to update? And I'm presuming, of course, we haven't got our copy yet, but I'm presuming you did a thorough update and added new information. Yes. Yeah. So back during the Promise Keepers era, this would be in the early 90s. You know, dad was quite popular on the Promise Keepers circuit. They used to do those stadium rallies. And by the way, I understand Promise Keepers is planning to do a resurgence. And we can talk more about that if you want. But at any rate, early 90s, dad, I I think I was there that night. He was in Boulder, I believe. And he was kind of feeling his oats. And he did, you know, what what he did so well was to to package a lot of biblical truth in very simple but memorable terms. And so in his classic form, he goes, men, every man needs a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. You need a Paul to build into your life. You need a, a, a Barnabas to walk alongside you, and you need a Timothy into whose life you're investing. Well, that little formulation just grabbed hold of people. And on the basis of that, he was asked to write a book on mentoring, and he let me get in there and help him wordsmith it. And so we wrote a book, as Iron Sharpens Iron, Building Character in a Mentoring Relationship. And that book is still in print, and it still sells. And I've had many people tell me they've they've read it and benefited from it. So a couple of years ago, the publisher, Moody, came to me and said, would you be interested in updating this for a whole new era, which to me was a no brainer. You know, I mean, uh, like I said, we got a whole new generation of, of people, of men who this, this is new territory for them and they're looking for mentors. So, you know, the first book was kind of dad's take on mentoring. I mean, he was the master. I was just the wordsmith. Obviously I had a few of my ideas in there, but it was basically his thoughts on, on the mentoring relationship. Well, dad's with the Lord now. And hopefully I've learned something about mentoring in the last 23 years. And so I'd say about 60% of the book is new material. I use some things that were great from the old book, but I I put in some new material. It's still geared toward men. I mean, it's not like it doesn't, these principles apply to women. And I have absolutely no problem with mentoring women. I've been, I, I think there's a bunch of women who would consider me a mentor and and I've certainly benefited from the mentoring of many women. But that book originally was aimed at men. And believe it or not, today, there's a lot of books geared toward women and mentoring. Very, very few have been written from a Christian standpoint on mentoring of men. So I decided to just keep it, since that's what I know most. The first half of the book is for men who are looking for mentors, therefore younger men. And the second half is for men who need to serve as mentors, who typically are older men. So let me jump in there, and this is two parts of it. Um, you've touched on one about younger men and women. 
you could, you know, if you had a legion of, of people who are, are willing to mentor, first mm. of all, talk to that younger, you know, 20, 30 something man or woman who's looking, how, how do they start? How, how do they start yeah. sifting through? I, I mean, I want somebody to mentor, but I don't know where to go or how. Well, the first thing to do as always in these things is to pray. And I don't say that lightly. I believe that God has actually set things up here in the world that most people need a mentor. And I've got some hard research from the work I have been doing for the last 25 years on giftedness. And I've got what amount to owner's manuals on about 2,000 individuals and actually quite a few more beyond that uh, that my colleagues have done. So I've looked at thousands of these owner's manuals on people, like what makes them tick. And based on that, I can say with confidence that easily 75% and more likely 85% of people uh, having a mentor in their life, and and probably more than one, is not just an, a luxury. It's not a nice thing to do. It's It's a necessity. Like they don't thrive as human beings if they don't have that. So, I mean, this is like really important stuff. And so God knows that. And so it makes sense that you would pray and you would ask him to guide you towards someone. I find that when people are praying about such a thing, their eyes are a little more open to recognizing such a person when they run into them um, and trusting that God's going to lead them because he will. So then where does it go from there? Well, you think about, okay, I want to mentor. What what am I expecting this person to do? Uh, there's kind of two levels of mentoring. One is what I call top level matters. You know, I don't, let's say that you grew up in a home and where there was some dysfunction around money. Like you don't really know how to set up a budget and you're chronically finding yourself behind financially. You're in debt. You, you've overspent on your credit cards. You know, that's a problem area for you. Well, it makes sense to try to find somebody who could help you with that, who knows something about money and sit down and ask them, you know, give me a crash course and setting up a, a, a decent financial system for myself and my family. Well, that's a top level issue. That's a skill kind of thing. And, and those are countless. I mean, you know, how do I how do I make a decision? How do I hire a person? Uh, how do I uh, find a better job? How do I communicate with my wife? I mean, those are what I call top-level issues. Then there's deeper issues, and those have to do with your character, your troubles, um, your aspirations. Uh, and those usually don't come on the table until you've gained some trust with another person and you feel like, you know, I'm willing to bare my soul and tell them what I really feel, what I really think, what I really yearn for. And now we're getting down into the really innards of a person. Many times it starts with those top level issues and then we move into the deeper issues. Um, but you, you kind of need to think about what am I looking for to begin with here? A third thing is to put yourself in opportunities path. The truth of the matter is we've got candidates to be our mentors all around us. We just, we don't pay attention. I think it really helps if, if you belong to a, a church a community of the body of Christ, because you will find people there, particularly older people who've walked with Christ for a while, and therefore they have some spiritual maturity and some wisdom. And it's not like they haven't made mistakes. Um, and they may see the world a little differently than you do, but that, that's not all bad. 
And so you then approach them. And I think another key thing for somebody who's looking for a mentor to realize is you're going to have to take the initiative. The likelihood that somebody walks up to you and says, hey, how about if I mentor you? <laughs> I mean, that never is going to happen. Right. And if it does happen, you probably should be you know, careful. Yeah. Be real careful. You need to walk up to somebody and say, hey, listen, I've got some questions. Could I could I buy you a cup of coffee? And a kind of a word of caution here is I mean, we're talking about mentoring and I'm using the word mentor in every other sentence. But I never use the term mentor. And I wouldn't encourage anybody to use that term because it's kind of, you know, what we call spooking the deer. I mean, uh, if you, if you walk up to the average uh, person and say, would you mentor me? You'll get a real deer in the headlights look and they'll be like, oh, no, no, man, you, you got the wrong person. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't mentor anybody. Um, but anybody will, will respond to the question, can I buy you a cup of coffee? I got some questions. And then you just sit down and you, you just start telling what you know and telling some of your story and see where it goes. It's not the best illustration, but I, I encourage folks, think of it like a dating in the sense that yep. this may be a one-time coffee or 10-time coffee or three years. But don't look exactly. at it like, hey, can you mentor me for five years? Uh, and, and, you exactly. Know, I, yeah. So I think that's some common sense. Um, yeah, because chemistry factors in here. Totally. There's no, no doubt about it. You know, some people you're going to get along with and some people you're going to think, you know, that, that was fine, but I, I'm, I think I'll keep looking. You've touched on like the financial issues or maybe parenting issues. One of the things uh, I picked up in our time in D.C. was the, uh, the abbreviation SME, subject matter expert. And so yes. I'm, I'm always looking for who's the subject expert in this area. Maybe it's marriage, maybe it's mm -hmm. parenting, maybe it's finances, maybe it's um, you know, whatever. And and that mentor maybe for a season uh, just kind of helps exactly. get calibrated and get some good ideas. Um, I have one story. Uh, you know the man. I won't embarrass him on the podcast, but he's a, a uh, he was a kidney. Uh, dialysis nephrology guy in in Texas, hmm. and um, he was an elder slash uh, mentor, and I pursued him, uh, and I was I'll never forget Bill driving from Grand Prairie, Texas, to meet him for lunch, in uh, at uh, Southwestern Medical School, and he was a busy guy. I mean, he had people coming in with yeah. papers he was signing, and he had two set Subway sandwiches there with two Coke cans, and he goes start eating, and I mean it was you know. And then uh, I'm munching on my subway, and when sort of the smoke clears, he goes, what do you need? <laughs> and, and I start kind of whining and complaining about this or that or the other. And he, he essentially he says, after a few minutes of hearing me whine, he says, Michael, did you come here to whine or do you have a question? <laughs> and I can still see it, Bill. And I, I said, I look kind of down, he goes, I'll tell you what, take your sandwich, go home. When you got a question, come back. <laughs> now he denies that to this day but i, I why would i make it up right and you remember, so right, right oh goodness and he was right and i drove back to grand prairie going what do i want of these people right and so especially if they're busy high caliber you know people you don't want to waste their time i mean there's a relational piece there the chemistry but uh it's got to be valuable and and for both ways so anyway right. And then Floyd Sharp is a person you know, I knew, I, I mean, he's with the Lord as well, but mm -hmm. Floyd was a, 
a guy never picked out of a crowd, but he became a phenomenal mentor for 15 years. Um, and that mentorship became friendship. Uh, yeah. Not unlike your dad. So anyway, just to encourage folks in that regard, talk to the older man, woman. Uh, number one, I don't have anything to offer. Number two, I don't understand these young people. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I always tell folks, please just don't ever use the, when I was your age, you know, but beyond yeah. that, how do you encourage someone who they've lived life? You, as you said, they've got some wisdom and miles, but they feel incapable or ill prepared or insecure in encouraging some younger folks. Part of it is from the beginning, we need to, as they say, demystify this process. There's a, image of a mentor that's out there that, as I say, it's the person who's got all the answers. They're this wise guru, uh, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi type figure, and everything that comes out of their mouth is genius. Well, that kind of mentoring, that form of that view of mentoring is actually rather recent development that actually started in the 15th century. A guy named Francis Fenelon was the person who was tutoring the future kings of France. He was a religious mystic, but he was an educator, and he basically borrowed from Greek mythology, particularly Homer's poem, The Odyssey, in which there is a character named Mentor in there, Right. and Mentor was supposed to be in charge of the son of the protagonist, Odysseus. At any rate, he borrowed that character, and he turned him into this wise, all-knowing, what I call the smart man, the guy with all the answers. And he and Telemachus go on a voyage and, and all these things that he teaches Telemachus. And he used that whole device to try to articulate his view of what a king or royalty should, should look like and what they should value. It was actually a very popular book in its time, and that view of mentoring exists to this day. But it's a terrible view because nobody has all the answers. And the reality is that the actual mentor in the Odyssey, supposedly Odysseus, leaves him behind to raise his son and to take care of his property. Well, if that was the marching orders, he did a terrible job of it because when Odysseus gets back after 20 years, his household is in disarray. Everybody thinks that he's died in the wars. Uh, so their suitors are after his wife and they're going to kill his kid so they can take over the island of which he was the king. Mentor is really a minor figure in that story. And here's the kicker. It's actually not Mentor who gives anything to Telemachus. In Greek mythology, whatever happens on earth has to happen among the gods first. They have to decide. So the gods meet, and Athena decides that she is going to impart to Telemachus what's called menos, which means a heroic character. She's going she's gonna to say some things to him and, and work on him to turn him into the man he longs to be. And But she disguises herself as the character Mentor. So every time Mentor speaks to Telemachus, it's actually Athena speaking to her. Now, I find that fascinating because a lot of mentoring that takes place takes place at levels that we don't, we're not even aware of. And I believe, I'm not in any way equating Athena with the God of the Trinitarian God of the Bible, but I believe that anytime you deal with anybody, you've got to assume that God is already at work in their life. And so you can trust that that's taking place and that the Spirit of God will speak and work through any interaction you have with that person if indeed you're 
open to that and you're asking God to make that possible. And in ways you're not even aware of, you will begin to affect the life of this other person. I mean, Proverbs is where the title of the first book came from. Proverbs has this wonderful verse in chapter 22, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The idea in plain English is that people have a way of rubbing off on each other. We influence each other just by interacting. And so if I, as an older person, come alongside a younger person particularly and simply spend time relating to them, and I don't have to come with all the answers, I just need to come. My presence alone has something powerful involved. And particularly if I just invite that younger person to tell me their story, the best way to understand people is through their stories. So the simplest question in the world is to say, well, where was growing up for you? And that's the prompt. And they get started and they start talking about that. And you just say, well, tell me more. And sooner or later, they, they you know, they kind of walk you through their life. And as they do, a, you start to get to know them as an actual human being because you ask the question, you know, I don't understand young people these days. Well, believe me, I don't think there's a human alive that if I couldn't in some ways crawl inside their skin and experience everything they've ever experienced, listen to every conversation they've ever been part of, you know, gone through all the things that they've been through, I would look at them and I'd say, makes perfect sense why you'd feel that way or think that way or act that way. And that's essentially what you do when you invite someone to tell you their story. It's a very powerful thing when somebody tells you their story. You not only get to know them, you get to understand what issues they're really dealing with, both positive and negative. If that alone happened, I think we would see some profound things start to take place in our culture. I sort of asked the question, See, everybody has what I call the story of me. You have your story. I have my story. Each person has a story. And of course, their story is still being written until they pass on. But just telling the story is very powerful. And if somebody, most people have never told their story to anybody. And I often ask, well, if a story is not told, does it have value? And I, and I think that's a searing question. We got so many people who have their story and, and they've never gotten to tell it. Nobody's bothered to listen to it not only makes them feel lonely, it makes them feel unknown. It makes them feel unappreciated, unvalued. And just a simple thing of having a cup of coffee to kind of get into somebody's life can be profoundly transformative. And you don't even have to worry about doing the transformation. God's going to do that. But you show up and God will go to work through you. And it's somewhat of a mystery, but I'll tell you, it's, it's a profound mystery, a profoundly powerful mystery. Let's jump ahead a bit and talk about, is there a time and how and when do you end a mentor relationship? Yeah. Maybe that's not even something you have to, you know, really think through, but just to help people in a process. Well, you certainly don't need to look at every relationship, every mentoring relationship as a till death do us part arrangement. Most of them, it's not like that. I mean, and I think some of them are, are established through ages and stages. So for instance, many people will point to a teacher or coach they had in say high school or college. And while occasionally I'll find somebody that says, yeah, whenever I go back home to my, the small town where I grew up, I still go by and see coach Smith or, you know, or Mrs. Jones, who was my, you know, math teacher. 
because she made such an impact on me. And she's still there, and uh, she's getting older, but I love to go see her. Sometimes that happens, but most of the time, people will remember that, yeah, Mrs. Jones was very, very helpful to them, not only teaching them math, that's, that's a top-level issue, but it was something about her belief in them. It was something about her encouragement. It was something about the way she lived her life and the way she treated them. They never forgot that. Well, you know, they graduated from junior high school and then later high school and went off to college. So that relationship ended quite naturally, but the memory of it never did. And the same thing is true even in our adult years. I've had people that were very, very useful and powerful in my life who were older or sometimes appear, but then, you know, they moved away or I wasn't in as critical a need of their of their input and we haven't spoken in a long time. And occasionally, I suppose there is the case that somebody has a protege, if you want to call it that, that they've really been building into, and that person begins to eclipse them. You'll see this sometimes in universities where a younger professor kind of gets tutored by an older professor, but that younger professor's gifts begin to make them very popular and their research lifts them into the higher echelons of that field. And, you know, at some point, the the protege has overtaken the master yeah. in terms of influence. And sometimes that doesn't end well. The, the master kind of resents the fact that his star has fallen out of orbit. And there's cases of actually attempts to sabotage that younger person's work. But I don't think it needs to get to that. I, I think the smart thing is just to say, listen, I help to get this person, you know, to where they are. And I'm so thankful that they're now knocking it out of the park in ways I never could. Some of us are old enough to remember the um, Kang series and, and the opening. He's a little boy and the master has a pebble in his hand and he tries to snatch it. And he says, when you can take the pebble, it will be time for you to go. And, yeah. uh, you know, fast forward, he becomes, you know, 20 something years old and he snatches the pebble and he goes, time for you to go. And, <laughs> and so then the guy <laughs> right. goes on his journey. But uh, let me get specific. When Bill Hendricks looks at his own life story, people that mm. have influenced you, uh, give me four or five things you learned specifically from a mentor. Oh, man, I could give you four or five hundred, but I know we don't have time. So one of the first ones was a guy named Mr. Gibson in, in seventh grade. I remember it like it was yesterday because fifth grade had been a bust for me. My teacher was a very strict person, and she felt like everybody needed to follow the rules, and, and that that's fine. My problem was I was getting through the assignments too quickly, which left time on my hands, and that's dangerous with me. So the punishment was to spend time out in the hall. I think I spent the better part of fifth grade out in the hall, and, <laughs> and it kind of <laughs> – was very shaming and it, it yeah. a lot of problems attached to it. Somehow I made it through sixth grade. And then a new teacher, Mr. Gibson, showed up. Mr. Gibson took one look at me and realized that I was an energetic, bright, young little kid who needed things to do. And he, he invented things for me to do. And wow. they were things that would build my leadership skills. They were things that built my writing skills. They were things that built my musical skills. He channeled that energy and probably one of the most significant things he did that I only learned about years later was that he took my parents aside and said, listen, you need to really think about putting your son in a private school that's got a 
more enriched curriculum than he's going to get in the schools uh, that the city's able to provide. And they did that. And that opened up all kinds of doors for me educationally that I've been, been a, you mentioned Harvard. I'd have never gotten into Harvard if I hadn't gone to that high school. And it's all because of Mr. Gibson. And so there's one I, I can think of. I, I can think of a guy named Pete Hammond. Pete Hammond was with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and he ran what was called the Marketplace Division within InterVarsity, which was focused on trying to help Christians integrate their faith and their work. And he tapped me to work with him on a study Bible project, which Thomas Nelson published called the Word in Life Study Bible. And it was probably before its time, but if any of our listeners are familiar with, you know, some of the online tools that we have now, like the Logos Bible software, well, we didn't have the internet in those days, but this Bible was the precursor to it. We had all kinds of articles and study material in this thing, and it was all in plain English. It wasn't these deep theological things you see in a lot of study Bibles. This was this was very practical stuff around themes of people's real lives. So that was kind of a top-level issue. But in working with Pete, I was around a man who loved people the way Jesus would love people. And he was a guy who taught me a lot about uh, racial reconciliation because he had worked very hard in that whole department. He taught me about multi-ethnicity. He taught me about the importance of cities. He taught me about how to read people through the lens of the gospel and show compassion. I could go on and on about Pete. He's with the Lord now. He was somebody who profoundly marked my life in that way. I've been very blessed to have some amazing mentors. My dad, you know, in addition to being a father, was a mentor. I've learned so much about dad or from dad about communication, about leadership, about being a godly husband, about keeping short accounts with God and your sins, about persistence and discipline to do the thing you need to do, even when you don't feel so good. Dad was definitely a mentor as well as a father. One of the things I vividly recall from, you know, either Floyd or my dad or your dad or other men who poured into me was some of them are witticisms. You know, my, my dad had this line about the reward of work is not the end of work, but the work itself. And mm. when I was young, I'd say, I can't wait for the weekend. I can't wait for Friday and have the weekend. He'd go, boy, you're wishing your life away. You know, and, uh, mm. you know, and so many of those things that stick with me. And then what's, and I'm sure you experience this too. It's humbling, but it's also a little frightening when people that you are around and they start picking up on Bill Hendricks isms or, or Michael Easley's isms <laughs> and they start saying them back or pair or, or the, the worst part <laughs> is when they quote you wrong. That's what irritates me, <laughs> but nevertheless, they're catching it, you know, and, and yep. Wow, what a joy, you know, one of the extemporaneous things that I said years ago that's actually become my life's motto is don't let the world teach you theology. And anybody mm. that's been around me can parrot that back. You know, Dr. E says don't let the world teach you theology or this life at best is a clean bus station. And it's these little axiomatic things that are so mm. packed with those years of wisdom because <laughs> you're working so hard to make, you know, earth heaven or you're working so hard for the wrong thing and your kids are growing right. up underneath your, uh, you know, busy schedule. But all I have to say, you, know, I, I, you and I are on the same page. We just want to encourage men and women. I, I don't think you're too old or irrelevant or incapable and maybe uncomfortable. 
for some folks. Right. Uh, but have a cup of coffee. Don't make it a marriage. Just have a cup of coffee. And like you said, ask a few questions. Tell me about your job. What's encouraging? What's challenging? I don't know about your experience, but in, uh, kind of wind down on this last point. When I meet with younger men, and I, you know, younger men of 30s now, you know, I'll ask them questions like, what's the biggest challenge you're facing? Or even more intimate, how's your sex life in your marriage now that you've got three kids? I'm struck, Bill. They answer. Yep. The generations that are rising are, are far more open than perhaps our generation, certainly our parents' generation. And, and I think it's because they're looking for some input. Exactly. exactly. And again, they're not so much looking for answers. They're looking as, would you walk with me as I walk through this? Right, right. And if you have any wisdom, I'd sure like to hear it. But Well, and I think that's where we had to be diplomatic, and you're so good at the asking their story and listening carefully. And it's more, you know, Floyd Sharp would listen to me uh, complain about something, and he would say, well, Michael, not the same thing, but. And then he would yeah. tell me a story. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we've learned working with our couples is, you're not the subject matter expert hero. You are a vulnerable, transparent. You know, I struggled. I, I really messed up as a father in these years. Or I wish I would have done this differently. Or you know what? We did a really, I think, a really good job when it came to this. And I think that transparency is huge. All right. Well, let me let me pitch this to you. Any any final thoughts? Any, land the plane for us, Bill. Well, Michael, you said something very important just a few minutes ago when you pointed out that basically we're going to have an influence for better or for worse, right? Like that's unavoidable. I mean, the Proverbs 22 is absolutely correct. It just puts those two thoughts side by side the way Hebrew poetry does. Iron sharpens iron. One man sharpens another. That's, That's literally how it reads. It lets you do the math. Well, clearly what it's saying is you're going to rub off on each other. You're going to have an influence. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. And so that means you can either do it well or you can do it poorly. And you can do it intentionally or you can do it unintentionally. I'm thinking we want to do it well. We want to do it intentionally. And that's really why I wrote the book, the second version of the first book, because we desperately need mentors in our culture. We've always needed mentors. And I'd love to see that practice of mentoring and mentoring relationships come back into vogue the way it always was intended, certainly all the way back to the time of Christ and, frankly, the time of Moses and earlier. Bill Hendricks, author of the new book, Men of Influence, The Transformational Impact of Godly Mentors. You can find information in the show notes on how to get a copy, or you can just search any online store, and we'd encourage you to pick up a copy and maybe uh, buy three copies and and give two to friends and say, hey, let's, let's sit down and read this together and, and see what God might do with our lives and uh, men and women around us that we might encourage and mentor. And uh, it, it's a huge topic. It's your dad's legacy. It's Paul's legacy, 2 Timothy 2, 2. And trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So thanks for your work, Bill, and for your friendship. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Look forward to the next time. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, 
and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. 